I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. In today's episode of Talking Architecture and Design, we interview Troy Creighton from StormTech, who, if you don't already know, are Australia's leading manufacturer of linear drain products. Troy joins us today to kick off our very first residential series of podcasts to discuss sustainability, the history of StormTech, and what makes StormTech drains so great. Okay, today we have a returning guest on our podcast, Managing Director of StormTech, Troy Creighton, who will talk about StormTech's or humble beginnings, there are, can I call them humble, uh, and the interesting story of the company as well as uh, what is the current state of the industry and how sustainability is set to change in the future in terms of water, particularly where a storm that has a lot of work. So, welcome back, Troy. Uh, looks like I didn't upset you too much last time because I decided or you agreed to come back. I'm happy to be back, Ranker. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to take you back in time, preferably before 2020, where everything went pear shaped. Okay, <laughs> a long way back, say at least. 30 years. So StormTech is a really interesting company, actually, because you start off in a completely different area, and you, but you, you have a very long history. Um, so can you tell me how it all began at StormTech and why on earth drains? I mean, not to belittle your wonderful products, they are great products, but you know, when many people go, would, would want to go design something, you know, I guess in the building industry, everyone goes for that, oh, what, what do you call it? Um, the more... The more you know, glam part part of that uh, the building, you know. So so, why did you cho- guys choose um, you know drains and um, it's really, look jokes aside, it is a pretty much an invisible part of the building, isn't it? So how did you all start and how did we get the drains? Well, um, it is uh, an interesting um, story, especially you know from my perspective, being part of it all the way through. So nineteen eighty nine August, horse's birthday. Um, dad and I were finished up working for a day. Dad was um, quite an accomplished concreter, so fairly uh, highly skilled guy doing a lot of architectural work and some larger commercial work around the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And as you can imagine, uh, doing work uh, for architects, and at that time it was really quite interesting because architects were still a lot more involved than they are now in the end to end construction um, of everything from residential through to your large commercial. And so the architect would be inspecting the, uh, the finish of our slab and how it would uh, integrate with the rest of the building fabric and the aesthetic they had intended. And uh, dad and I would uh, sweat and bleed to achieve what they wanted. Um, and they were often quite pleased. And you know, we cert- certainly both grew tough hands doing that. Um, but one of the things that uh, the architects or designers and high-end builders were working for never really picked up on was the grates, say, across driveway crossovers, patios, courtyards, and so on. The grates were literally all the same. They were either your hot-dip galvanised ladder grates, they were your cast iron or cast aluminium uh, grates, and they're all fairly industrial and there were no options and people thought, well, there are no options. So they never really considered changing them. But uh, dad was an inventor. He actually had been on the inventors a couple of times through the seventies and early eighties. 
with different ideas that he had and he applied that creativity to concreting and so he had certainly some very interesting um, jobs to work on but in applying that creativity he was always really let down with the greats that we would have to put in to our beautiful work and to that end he uh, really had sit down and you can imagine people with uh, their sketch pads in design and that was very much dad as well and he'd be sketching and sketching into the evenings of different ways he could achieve the um, the drainage required, but also how to make that look good. And in the end, he came up with the slot drain, which was uh, a very simple solution cast in. Um, you have a 90 mil storm pipe running underneath the slab, and then you screw a timber form to the top of that 90 mil storm pipe. The storm pipe had slots routed in it. And then you pour the concrete round, remove the timber form, and then you had a 25 mil wide slot in there. We worked out the dimensions. I was at the time able to use my uh, high school maths, a um, bit of differential calculus and quadratic equations because we couldn't afford to pay a hydraulic consultant uh, to do the job. Uh, we were in a recession at the time. There was a brewing war in the Middle East. Um, so it's somewhat similar to these days. And so money was tight. Um, so we had to work it out ourselves. So we built test rigs and so on to try and throw water at it to see if it'd do the job and it did. So dad uh, really latched onto that slot drain idea and that became our first product. So shortly after that, uh, dad and I were um, down the pub having a chat and he wanted to come up with a name. At the time we were called Creighton's Constructions. Uh, some of the listeners might remember us, but um, I thought, well, it's stormwater and we're applying a new technology to it. So how about I join the words and we'll call it Storm Tech and the name stuck. Um, and we've been called Storm Tech ever since. And then the evolution of um, the company came from necessity. Um, we had uh, a choice. We could uh, pay our rent uh, living in Sydney. We couldn't afford to buy. Uh, so we could pay our rent or we could eat. And we chose to pay the rent because a roof is better than food. We did that for quite a number of years. And then as we were going, we realized the slot drain was really quite an eccentric um, design that people, you know, although it worked, people couldn't see, you know, the massive benefit of it. The designers certainly jumped on it, but it wasn't enough to support us. And then we evolved the drain. So the original slot drains were slab on ground application and we were missing out on suspended slab application and the designers really liked the idea of having a narrow um, aesthetically pleasing drain instead of your big wide trench drains that people were used to and so dad came up with a manifold method um, so the slot drain he managed to get patents so that used up what little money we had and then he had to do another patent for the special assembly which is what we decided to call the uh, manifold system and then in doing that um, we started to move into actually a bit of an area where again there wasn't a lot of money in it um, again it was still quite eccentric doing architectural drainage uh, but dad persisted um, i was off working for other people because we couldn't afford to pay me and then um, some architects ed lipman um, springs to mind um, he had a number of clients that were renovating their house getting prepared for aging in place and so he wanted to use the drains in different applications because they were certainly nicer than anything else that was available on the market. 
And that came to the first was level threshold. So we could um, assist people with um, what's now AS1428 access and mobility. So we could assist those people in uh, updating the house so they wouldn't have to go up or down a step to get in and out of the, the house. And that was really starting to take off. But what really launched us was when um, on behalf of another architect, we took again the special assembly manifold system and updated that to be used in a shower. So you could remove the hob and have a level entry shower, which allowed the client to be able to go and have a shower without the need for a carer so they can maintain their dignity and they can stay at home longer without needing help. And the shower channel was born and uh, then changed the uh, fortunes of the business quite dramatically. Um, 1996 and 97, I put up a website with dad and we had our downloadable CAD files and so on because we didn't want to spend money on sending out printed documents and so on. And we thought, oh, well, that'll give us reach. And this really uh, launched the, the business onto a, a trajectory that we're, we're still on now. So it gave us a bit more worldwide attention um, we started doing little bitsy PC exports uh, for people who noted the solution. Um, Dad, being ahead of his time, was right into let's green up and do roof gardens. Um, moving on to all sorts of different applications for subsurface drainage and so on. And then really the shower channel overshadowed just about all of the other innovations uh, that uh, we were working on and, and that's grown and grown and grown to what it is now. It's becoming more of a, a standard rather than a, an exception. And it still solves all the problems that it solved originally. Um, you can have a single plane of fall, which means you can use your large tiles. You don't need to do diagonal cuts. Large tiles in a small room, I'm told, make it feel bigger. So lots of other design solutions, plus the obvious intent that it gives people opportunity to be able to care for themselves for longer in their own property. That led to basically an expansion of the business, but still it was, you know, we're talking late nineties, we we're still a cottage industry. Um, you could fit our entire company into the space of two combis. <laughs> and one of the combis was actually our work vehicle. Um, and that was really starting to um, to push the uh, the business into a, a big growth. So uh, we had to really look at what we were doing. We, we didn't have the money to be able to advertise and promote. We were still making everything by hand. Um, the, um, the opportunity to grow the business was somewhat out of our reach because we were really struggling to, to um, not only pay ourselves, but uh, pay the bills and so on. Um, so we relied heavily on reusing everything we had and sending out samples, but going and collecting them, visiting people face to face and so on. So the website was helping us a lot, but uh, by necessity, we were reusing anything and everything we could to, to keep growing. And that sort of led to really the current shape of the business, bringing it all in-house, keeping it Australian, um, which was definitely, definitely a, um, an ethos, a pillar of business for dad and myself. But that um, hand-to-mouth 
necessity of reusing things really set us up on a path to sustainability. Not only does the product filter the water to some degree as a gross pollutant trap, but it does really lead towards, we reuse the packaging, we reuse the timber, the pallets, all the offcuts that we had were used as samples. There was nothing left. Uh, there was no waste. All the printing that we did was reused and reused and reissued and so on. So we, we entered unintentionally a sustainable path. Dad being a bushy is uh, from casino originally, you know, he's, he's got that, um, that ability to be able to turn anything into something. And uh, like a pen would become a uh, glue nipple um, or a broken pen would become a glue nipple. Um, shoelace pilots would be um, used in, in a drill press to plug a hole, um, all sorts of things. And then as the companies evolve to where we are now, the sustainability um, wasn't, it, like I mentioned, it wasn't something that we were intending to be sustainable, but by the nature of our very business, we're in a sustainable area dealing with water as critical a resource as that is in Australia, but also the nature of the business, the culture has evolved that we waste nothing. And that's as we've grown and had employees come in and so on, everyone's picked up that culture and we've, continued to do that. So although we use materials like PVC um, and PVC does have its issues, we know we're audited by Ernst & Young for our uh, green tag um, uh, certification. And we know that we've got, as far as waste in the factory goes, we've got less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of waste. And that's basically cutting dust, which does go to landfill but everything else um, is reused and repurposed or reground and used to make new material. We have a product stewardship scheme where we will, you return whatever offcuts you want to the point of purchase. We'll pick it up on the next trip through and we'll either reuse it ourselves or have it repurposed or recycled um, as appropriate. So it, it's, certainly evolved into a sustainable business initially by necessity then because it's just the culture that we have within the business and uh, ongoing that is the future of the world if we can't if we cannot reuse and reduce and recycle then we are heading to a landfill hell stuff here do you not is that correct or your drains that they make here yes yes so we have suppliers like anyone has suppliers and so as when we started out we were hand making everything um our pvc product obviously we don't have pvc extrusion um we have that done for us by a local business tech glass um then uh, as we grew, we needed to outsource some of our stainless steel fabrication. And uh, we've now been insourcing and bringing it back in-house. So we've remained at our core 100% Australian business. The one downside to this was in 1995, BHP 
took the position that there's not a, enough demand for stainless steel in Australia and they shut the bright mills down in uh, Wollongong. And so Australia no longer manufactured its own sheet or uh, raw stainless. So Australia is now forced to bring in stainless steel in its raw formats um, from overseas. And to that end, um, we are very picky where we get our stainless steel from. So part of the supply chain is that uh, we need to know who our suppliers are. So there are only very specific mills around the world where we source our material from. Interesting. Uh, so what, what, where I was going to go with that, well, okay, yeah, I'm surprised we don't make our own stainless steel. It's, it's kind of sad, really. But it is. in terms of when I go to a certain very well-known hardware chain, <laughs> may or may not sell sausages out, out in the car park. Um, I was going to say, that, like shunning. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I go in there, and you know, wherever I, whatever I'm buying, like, it doesn't matter. You know, whether it be gloves, whether it whether it be a gurney, whether it, it doesn't matter, screwdriver, whatever. I just bought some some um, uh, what do you call them? Like screen doors. Okay. Um, question is everything's made mainly in china but not exclusively but a lot of it's made in china was it hard to decide that you're going to make stuff here and was there a was there a downside to that or was it was it only an upside okay yeah um so there was never any question about where we would make our product um australian made is a passion of mine separate to dad, it's just something I'm into as well. Um, a lot of my equipment uh, in the workshop on the march to automation industry 4.0 is amazingly made in Australia. You do pay a premium, but just like many things, the upfront costs will often mean uh, less cost in the future because you've got local support, local supply and so on. Whereas something upfront cheaper might mean a far greater cost in the future as obsolescence means you can no longer get parts, the company is no longer in business, they're part of a bigger company, it gets bought out, uh, you've got less and less and less control. But my, my passion about Australian Made is we need to be able to support ourselves. Um, it's inherent, Australia is a clever country and unless we can add value to our product, like simply exporting unwashed wool, iron ore, coal, and so on. It's probably the dumbest export policy you can have. It's what a third world country would focus on to get themselves to the next level so that then they can add value to their product. Problem for Australia, the obvious one, is tyranny of distance. We're a long way from everywhere. So where I've taken the business is, and currently, so for the last almost 20 years, um, I've been focusing on let's add value by speciality. Let's have a genuine speciality. So, yes, we fell into architectural drainage. It, it was not a planned thing. It was just solving a problem for ourselves um, that ended up solving problems for others. And if we can maintain, I mean, this is just common sense as well. If we can maintain this speciality, then there's a body of knowledge that supports that speciality. 
that gives you an opportunity to defend your market in a way that no opportunist knockoff merchant can really ever come in. So does that mean you own the market? Of course not. You can't, everyone remembers BHP Monopoly and they're a pain in the ass to deal with. No one likes a monopoly. So let's not go down the monopoly path. But if we're going to have a market, a free market, then what are your competitive advantages? And part of your competitive advantage is the knowledge, your knowledge of your market. Lucky for us, we created this market. It did not exist. It was one that we, Dad and I started by hitting the road and meeting people face to face and showing them what we're doing and introducing the idea. We now share the market with many competitors and majority of them are international. But that doesn't mean these competitors are specialists. That does not mean these competitors have any investment in the culture of our construction industry, in our design industry. They're simply trying to turn a dollar. So having your body of knowledge and being a genuine specialist allows you to support the industry and allows you to compete without having to be the cheapest or the, um, well, basically it just comes down to the cheapest because most of the competitors, it's a drag race to the bottom on who can do the lowest margin. Yeah. As soon as you do that, you compromise the quality of the product and the end user ends up having to pay more. Either it's hard to clean, it blocks easy, it doesn't last too long, it's not fit for purpose. It's uh, so many different things. Here's one for you. Who knows that you need to equip equipotentially bond your pool grates when you do a pool installation. No one knows that. But when we have a specialist installation, we can do that. Uh, we were the people that did the, um, the RAF based grates for the new fighter jets. Why? Because they had, a, they had a specialist need. And so we have the body of knowledge to be able to supply solutions for those needs. All those years that you've been doing this, what have been your major challenges? Major challenges? Um, there are non-stop major challenges. Um, the first one's a lack of knowledge. Um, when we were starting out, no one else had done what we were doing. And so we had to try and figure it all out for ourselves. There was no one to copy off. There was no one to guide us. Um, we had to work it all out. So when dad did the first shower channel, it was something he really didn't want to do because we had no knowledge. We couldn't afford to buy all the standards or pay consultants to tell us about sanitary drainage, stormwater drainage. No problem. We had to deal with that in concreting all the time, but sanitary drainage is, a, a different animal. Um, now that I've been in it for so long, there's, there's not a lot that, uh, I haven't come across before, but initially, uh, lack of knowledge was definitely something that was a, a, a real challenge. Uh, the second challenge after that would be the obvious one of if you have a product and you're trying to promote it is being able to afford to promote it, to be able to get the message out to people. And we partly overcame that with the internet and the, Storm, the first StormTech website um, and having the downloadable CADs certainly solved a lot of the issues of making it a bit of a self-service site uh, for people. Being small was another challenge. Um, being so very, very small, we didn't have the capacity or capability to do as much as we saw we needed to. 
so we had to really be super agile in our day-to-day -day activities to try and make the most of it. Obviously, we didn't have financial resources behind us um, to, to do a lot of the business activities that you would consider basic. Um, so again, we, we had to be really quite um, tactical on what we did to grow it. Um, other issues were at the time, uh, say mid nineties, uh, stainless steel fabrication in Australia was uh, really limited. Um, it certainly wasn't a growth industry. It was a somewhat in decline. Um, manufacturing in Australia had been steadily in decline. So we were looking at less and less resource opportunities for us to be able to make the product. Then it was a numbers game. So another challenge was how do we get out and see thousands of architects? And that was just simply one solution available to us. And that's hop in the car, go and visit every architect that we could without appointments, just pure cold calling, leave a brochure, leave a sample and so on, and then go and collect them if they weren't interested in them so we could give them someone that was. Um, that was a, a huge one that took dad and I about three and a half years to get mostly around probably from Sydney up to um, the Tweed, Gold Coast and a little bit of Brisbane and then uh, down to Victoria um, and Melbourne. And we, we did that two and a half times. Um, so that was thousands of architects each uh, to go on cold call. Um, so that was a really big challenge, but one that had to be met with um, basically, I suppose, a, a blunt force <laughs> solution of just get out and do it. There was no finesse or sophistication in that approach. Which, um, you know, which areas of sustainability in terms of the standards and protocols uh, do you mainly, um, uh, you know, uh, meet and or exceed? Like I mentioned before, we were sustainable by necessity. But I, and I thought it was going to be quite a, a simple um, box ticking exercise to, to get some sort of recognition of our sustainable uh, credentials and, you know, sourcing sustainable power, um, reusing everything on site and so on. But it was a huge education for me when we actually went to true certification. Um, the amount of knowledge that we had to have far beyond what I already had at the time of my supply chain. Um, so it's not my supplier, it's their supplier and so on down the path. Um, it's about where we're um, sourcing our sustainable power. It's how we're handling product, how much waste goes out, how far a truck has to travel and how, what sort of truck it is, how much diesel it uses, how many stops it makes, the, uh, the life cycle assessment and the life cycle rate, the EPDs and the PhDs and so on, were, they were an education in themselves in understanding my business. And that is a, a really fantastic education opportunity for anyone that's looking at their business of how sustainable they are. So a, a good example of that will be, I thought we were sustainable, but then how much of our Rico PVC, how much of other people's PVC 
do we take? And so that's a challenge that we're facing right now because we don't take other people's PVC, we just take our own because we've got more than enough. So what are we gonna do if we take on other people's PVC? That would give us a, a better credential. I mean, we're already at, at uh, green rate level A um, and gold. So how do, we, how do we improve on that? Then there's the, well, what is sustainable? And here's something that people might not realize is just because you've got a sustainable um, certification doesn't actually mean you're sustainable. <laughs> it just means they've given you a measure. That's all. So if you were to be really cynical about it, if you were to be an opportunist that's just going in there to make some cash, you'll certify a product in your range and then you'll just greenwash all over the place that you've got a certified uh, product that's green rate, whatever. And it might not actually even be a particularly green or sustainable product. So I think that's a challenge for not only myself, but that's a challenge for the industry. If you look at the industry at the moment, Stormtech is and has been for, oh, what, near 10 years now, the only sustainable drainage company in the world, full stop. The only people that have bothered to go to the full effort of sustainability, not only with um, our products, but with the business and with the culture. The culture came along, as, as I said, it's, it's embedded in the culture by necessity initially. But the other side, no other businesses have done it. And I see that that's actually really quite, quite tragic when there's, interestingly, opportunity for, well, cynical operators, opportunists to go in there and actually do a bit of greenwashing. But the greenwashing itself, I see as something of an opportunity, a backhanded opportunity for these opportunists to actually learn a bit about their business, understand what it is to be truly sustainable. How much water do we waste? It's, and everyone's heard me talk about this before, it's two Sydney harbours. Wow. A year, a year. Wow. That would be enough water for first Australians for about 10,000 years. Wow, okay. That's how much we waste on an annual basis. That's a lot of water. Um, and in a country that's the driest inhabited continent on earth. On that point, what would you say is driving that growth in the draining industry? Is that coming from the code and regulatory and sustainability obviously changes? Or is it being driven by people, such as yourself in the industry, who are, who are you know, promoting a different way of, of, of both, just not just designing, but also manufacturing and also, also you know, in terms of technology? How would you say where, where is the growth coming from? For the last few years, so if we forget about pandemic, for the last few years, um, most of Australia has been having more diff area, different areas have different uh, levels of problem. Most of Australia has been having issues with our defects are on the rise. Some of them are serious and make the news. Others are just irritating, but all of them cost. And there's a super significant cost to rectifying defects and your bottom feeders out there, they'll duck and weave and do whatever they can 
to avoid having to uh, live up to the expectations of the National Construction Code. So I'll just take this little moment too to say, remember everyone, the standards are the minimum. They're not the gold standard to aim at, they're where you should start, exceed the minimums. Anyway, I'll go get off my little rocking horse there. Um, the, what, we, what we've seen is too much emphasis on reducing cost, not enough emphasis on quality. So lately we've seen uh, an uptick in retention of specification because people are looking to go safe and stay with a quality product. And that's where things like certification come in. Once you have your certification, people can be comfortable that you've got getting a product that's not only fit for purpose, but it does have a level of sustainability. The sustainability certificate tells you exactly how sustainable it is. I'd like to see someone else come in and compete with us on it, because at the moment we are the gold standard and even the certificate says gold. But I, there's always room for improvement. Now, another uptick has been, thanks to the pandemic, people now starting to realise that uh, if we don't support manufacturing in Australia and there's some sort of natural disaster, I mean, there was a tsunami in Japan not long ago, there was a tsunami in Indonesia, we've got the pandemic. These are all what I would consider natural disasters. And that's been a significant impact on the supply chain into Australia. There's been such a massive um, change in Australian ma manufacturing that uh, now it's only, you know, eccentric businesses like us left manufacturing things in Australia where we can still support our customers. Stainless steel not being made in Australia is something that irritates me intensely but we do try and manage that and keeping our stocks and limiting who we do, modern slavery agreements and so on, like and quality, of course. So we've had an uptick from two areas. Number one is quality. Number two is Australian made. And number three is a solution. So people are realizing that super specialists like us, although I have the equipment to be able to manufacture a car from the ground up, I make drinks. And I'm applying the technology that we'd use to make a car or aircraft or computer components. And I'm making drains with that. What that allows me to do is that allows me to be able to solve problems for all ends. For the end user, easy clean, stay shiny because of the quality. For the installer, easy installation, easy availability, easy adaption. For the specifier, as many specifier resources and support as we can, many patterns and designs and styles and colors. Uh, so that's where the benefit of a super specialist comes. So at the moment, we're riding a wave um, right in the middle of the pandemic. Things are, are good for StormTech and also for my, my, um, my peer businesses. Things are, are, no one knows what next year is going to bring. It could come to a screeching halt, could be really weird, could be a big monkey dance for all we know. But um, these areas combine, so your speciality, your depth of knowledge, your quality, and your supply chain, all combine to make you the consistent supplier. It's just like the corner store that's open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You don't think about going anywhere else. You just go where you know you can be sorted out. 
Okay, so what does the future hold for where where Stormtech is going, and, and in terms of where where you see you know your your company actually being I don't know five or ten years. So five or ten years, I'm really charging on the export markets. Um, as we speak, we've had solid, very solid growth in the US over the years, and that's basically because they're quite similar construction environments. Yes, they've got their, their differences. Everything's got to be Americanized. Um, and they've got a different sequence of construction in some ways. Um, but overall, your distribution and supply situation is very similar to Australia. So culturally, we're similar enough that it makes it easy. Our growth areas are into the UK and Europe. They seem to be quite strong. Uh, the Middle East is growing really surprisingly strong. Just this week, I've heard there's some massive projects kicking off again on the back of uh, a little bit less uncertainty out of the US where they get a lot of their funding. Um, and also the Saudis are settling down where they get more of their funding. Um, Asia is starting to move again um, significantly. And so we're, we're looking to um, expand our activities there that have been in kind of like a caretaker style for the last say three to four years. Um, so overall exports, really the, the growth area, we've got a, a raft, a, a big, a big, massive raft of new products that we're developing and innovations. And these are all based on problems people are having in the market with existing products. So we've got our balcony drainage, our threshold drainage, our shower channels, uh, we're looking at subsurface drainage. We're even um, working with, um, well, I actually can't say who I'm working with at the moment, it's all secret squirrel, um, but we're working on a PFAS um, decontamination solution. Uh, so these are all areas that are subsets of our core business, which is drainage and solving problems is really the core of the business. We started solving our own problems now we're solving other people's problems. So smart TV, smart car, smart, you know, fridges. Are we ever going to see a smart drain, Troy? Yeah, I teased this last time we were talking, you know. Um, we, 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 you know, it's, we, we constantly have people saying, oh, why did my drain get dirty? Because you used it, maybe? Um, when do I have to clean my drain? Well, whenever you clean the floor, it's part of your floor, right? I mean, I know I sound... Um, a little bit cheeky there saying that, but this is the perception. So some, it's just like the, the um, leaky buildings, cracking facades and so on. Um, people have lost first principles, put too much in the bottom line. And uh, we need to go back to a little bit of first principles, common sense. And as my, one of my production managers likes to say, you can't teach common sense. <laughs> I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when, when you could only get fridges in white. Okay. Yep. Um, are we at a stage where we can actually get drains in any colour but white or but grey? Well, we've been doing, um, back in the 90s, we had brass one. Uh, Glenn Merkett asked for brass. Um, I think Ed asked for brass on a couple of them. Uh, so, yeah, colours have always been an option on drains. Um, Bronze, um, about, oh, crikey, about 11 or 12 years ago, gunmetal sort of came out of nowhere and has sort of stayed as a bit of a, a popular finish. Um, 
we do uh, like going back on the solution side, we copper plate um, for um, antimicrobial uh, characteristics of copper. So when you're talking about um, food grade and uh, medical, uh, we've been using copper in our drains as a uh, as a practical solution because um, it does have an inherent antimicrobial uh, feature. That's just the nature of of copper, and um, the benefit of that is it's giving you a function. It's killing bugs in your drain um, in hospitals. The drains are a known vector for pathogens. Um, but copper, well, I don't know about. 10 odd years ago started to become popular. Um, and unfortunately that morphed into people saw bright copper in the magazines and they wanted bright copper. They didn't realize that you're going to get a verdigris on there and it's going to turn like a dark brown or even green depending on the environment. And we, that was a mistake. We, we missed that uh, people would expect that, or we missed the fact that many people would expect it to stay shiny and clean without ever needing a bit of brasso or or whatnot so uh, we experimented with lacquer finishes and so on in fact I've, I've still got some that we're field testing in my driveway and the unlacquered ones are still looking good whereas the lacquered ones actually failed within or the finish of them failed within about two years so we really don't recommend these uh, lacquer finishes on a floor drain because there's going to be simply too much wear on it and you're going to get damaged Powder coating is quite good. It's far more durable than I ever expected. Um, even if it chips, if it's applied correctly, it, it rarely peels. Uh, and then you've got PVD finishes. So there's a whole raft of PVD. But Australia has, ah, here we go, lack of capacity. Um, very limited capability in particle vapor, particle vapor deposition, um, which is PVD, which most people are familiar with their tap choices these days. Uh, with Mark Newson, he uh, got us to do a blue drain for him when we did our collaboration together. So he also wanted brass and black and white. So we've had those for a long time. Um, brushed gold is definitely a um, uh, a colour I've been told that's on the up and up. But also, here's one that surprises the heck out of me, and that's matte white. Really? Matte white in a bathroom. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, – you'll love it. In the showroom, you'll hate it in your own room. Why? The moment you touch it, you're going to get a smear, a smudge, uh, a water, and it's going to be near impossible to keep looking good. Okay. So drain, drains, and more drains. Is, is, is that where it's going? Yeah, we do have a side defence uh, business um, strategy going, um, but that's more to support local manufacturers in our area that do a lot of defense and we have capability that they need. Can I say, Troy, it's been a great interview. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> I'll, get a, I'll get a better repertoire jokes for next time. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I think uh, we'll be seeing you again. Um, that has been possibly the most illuminating interview I've ever done on drains ever. So thank you very much. We also much. had LEDs in our drains, so definitely illuminating drains. There you go. Thank you, Troy <laughs> Creighton from StormTech. Until next time, you've been listening to architecture, uh, talking architecture and design. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you once again to Troy Creighton from StormTech, whose sponsorship of our 2021 residential podcast series made today's episode possible. Listen out for further episodes in our upcoming residential focus series. For more information regarding residential bathroom drainage solutions and all things StormTech, please visit stormtech.com.au. I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.